0: Ladies and gentlemen, Sonny Rollins, the saxophone colossus. There's nobody quite like Sonny Rollins in the all-American sound and story of jazz. He was a teenager in Harlem in the 1940s when major players caught on to a rising star. Steadily over the decades, Sonny Rollins built one of the genius careers on the tenor saxophone alongside his rival and friend, John Coltrane. More than that, Sonny Rollins was making his music a way of life, a mission of self-study and self-improvement, a moral and philosophical course of inquiry and reinvention, of gentleness and peace all at the same time. In his 93rd year of life, Sonny Rollins now has the affirmation of a 700-page biography, meticulous and monumental, modeled, I think, on Robin Kelly's life of Sonny's friend Thelonious Monk. It lets all of us see Sonny Rollins up there with Walt Whitman and a few others on the Olympus of American art and storytelling. Aidan Levy, welcome. You've written one of the great artistic biographies I've ever read. It's social history, Aesthetic history, American history, too. And you've done it as a very young man, still in your 20s. What drew you to Sonny Rollins, or maybe Sonny to you?
1: I was drawn to Sonny from a very early age, starting when I was about 11 years old. I had been playing the saxophone for two or three years. And the very first jazz album I bought with my own money was Saxophone Colossus. And I listened to that album over and over again until it started to skip. He is really, I think, the greatest living improviser and one of the greatest musicians in the history of jazz. He always was striving to improve. There is a personal aura about this
0: man, and I felt it very powerfully. Fifteen years ago, he was going to play at Symphony Hall in Boston, and he came in and did a radio show with us. First of all, he signaled that he did not want any chit-chat beforehand, and then he also said that he'd rather be an Abu Ghraib which we knew at the time, then listen to his own sound. And I said, with apologies, we're gonna play lots of your own sound. And then we did, and he kinda melted there in the studio. He went into a bit of a fog and came out saying, I cannot believe that I played with the men on that recording. It was Sonny Stitt and Dizzy Gillespie, but there were so many others that he wanted to mention. Charlie Parker, Lester Young, Ben Webster, John Coltrane, Coleman Hawkins, Don Bias, Bud Powell, he said, in a sense, it's what life is all about because it's more than we can take out of it. It's something else happening. That's how it is. I listened to it. I did all those things. It was then, yet it's now because you can still hear it. And he went on in this very self-effacing, deeply grateful kind of review of his
1: life. It was remarkable. Absolutely. Absolutely. For Sonny, it started with Louis Jordan, known, of course, for songs like Choo 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 Boogie or Ain't Nobody Here But Us Chickens. He inspired Sonny Rollins. Sonny bought all his records.
2: Ain't move. Ain't move, move.
1: Coleman Hawkins is another person that you mentioned. When Sonny was about 10 years old, he decided to wait in front of Hawkins' apartment, because Hawkins lived in his neighborhood, for the man to come home. Eventually he did, of course, and Sonny got his autograph. Neither man realized that they would meet at RCA Studios 20 years later. But the reason Sonny wanted Coleman Hawkins' autograph was because of his recording of Body and Soul, which Sonny heard coming out of jukeboxes in 1939.
0: neighborhood story is important. It's a very New York story. He went to Benjamin Franklin High School. He lived around the corner almost from the Apollo Theater. He's the one-man embodiment of that Art Cain famous picture of A Great Day in Harlem, the black and white picture of close to 100 great players on the stoop at East 126th Street. That's Rollins country.
1: The, yeah, that photo was taken in 1958, and Sonny was at the time the youngest musician in the photo. What does that matter that he's not from New Orleans or Chicago either? Well, does Sonny embody the sound of Harlem? Yes, and I would say that there is no one sound that we can say that's the sound of Harlem because Harlem was a melting pot when Sonny was born. He was born on September 7th, 1930. And there were two major influences. One was the Harlem Renaissance. Mm. The other was the Great Depression. The Harlem Renaissance continued in a significant way despite the Depression. And Sonny grew up around the musicians, artists, writers, and intellectuals that he idolized. He would see them in the neighborhood. When the family moved to Sugar Hill and they were living on Edgecombe Avenue, one of Sonny's neighbors was W.E.B. Du Bois. Yes. At 409 Edgecombe Avenue, much of the leadership of the NAACP lived at that time. And Sonny became the captain of his stickball team and they used to play on Edgecombe Avenue and sometimes they would see Dr. Du Bois on his way home from work, and he would shoot them a glare, not realizing that they were the next generation's cultural warriors. I want to just
0: hear the sound of a recording called Blue Seven, because it illustrates, as well as I can understand it, one of the very distinctive things Sonny introduced, which was thematic improvisation. And you can almost hear that he's doing something very distinctive with the melody, in this track, but also with the harmony and also with the rhythm. This is three-way improvisation that he's giving his mates in this recording.
1: the idea is that there's not a division between melody and improvised solo they must be connected that's part of the idea of thematic improvisation here what i hear there aiden is that everybody's improvising
0: in a kind of spiritual harmony especially max roach the drummer
1: absolutely and that's really the spirit of the music and max roach spoke about that quite a bit of jazz as a democratic art form You're not paying attention to a conductor, that you get to make up your own part in a sense. And all the musicians on this iconic recording, Max Roach, pianist Tommy Flanagan, bassist Doug Watkins, and Sonny himself, are epitomizing that art.
0: What it meant to me, thematic improvisation, that we're all in it together. We're all composing on the fly here, every one of us.
1: When I listen to any of the jazz artists that I love, it does remind me that we are all improvising at all times. Life is a kind of improvisation, and Sonny exemplifies that in his life, also in his music. He hadn't boiled it down to a concept. He was, uh, you know, doing his thing. That's what Sonny did. He had a certain kind of rhythmic flourish. For example, one concept that he worked with was what he and Miles Davis knew of as pecking. They would play broken rhythms, experiment with their phrasing. Instead of playing one fluid eighth note line, they might surprise you by syncopating that line more than you might expect. That's something that you see throughout Sonny's career.
0: This was his own verbal improvisation when we last talked 15 years ago. He said to me, after listening to some of this music, jazz is to me really the music of forever because the freedom, the changing improvisation is what the world is. It sounds trite to say it, he said, but I'll say it anyway. Every sunset is different, and jazz is different like that. Everything that happens in nature is different, and this is what jazz represents to me. Jazz is the music because it has those qualities of freedom. Life, as we know, is all from the inside. It's not about outside. We have to search ourselves. That's where the battle is. The battle is not against the guy next door, but to make ourselves better people. That's what it's about. The whole thing is inside the soul of the person. He said, it took me a long time to find that out, and now I just have to act on it.
1: Mm. I still think that you get a sense of his soul going all the way back in his career, even though that thought didn't coalesce for a long time for him. It was always evident, starting in his early years, when he burst onto the scene as a teenage prodigy in the late 1940s. Another way that Sonny put it is jazz is an open sky. Aiden, there are
0: two other tracks I'd love you to hear just for the excitement of Sonny Rollins. First, with Clifford Brown, Pent Up House. What do you hear going on there, especially with the trumpet player
1: Clifford Brown? Well, firstly, that just shows us what a great composer Sonny is. The way that he creates rhythmic tension and then resolves it is fantastic. The Clifford Brown Max Roach Quintet is one of the classic groups in jazz history. He joined the group in late 1955 in Chicago he had the opportunity to either join the Miles Davis Quintet or the Clifford Brown Max Roach Quintet. Miles Davis wanted Sonny so badly that he started to report in interviews that Sonny had already agreed to join the group. And (laughs) people would go to a concert by the Miles Davis Quintet and they'd see Sonny's name on the marquee. But even though they had such a close relationship and they loved each other like brothers, some of the members may have been involved with drugs at the time. So he decided to join the clean living Clifford Brown, Max Roach Quintet. And when people would go to Miles Davis concerts expecting to hear Sonny Rollins, they heard a different tenor saxophonist, John Coltrane. That became known as the first great quintet. I don't think that Sonny made the wrong choice in any way because what he did with Clifford Brown and Max Roach, as well as the pianist Richie Powell and bassist George Morrow, is just some of the greatest music I've ever heard in my life. That's what makes it all the more tragic that Clifford Brown, Richie Powell, and Powell's wife died in a car accident only about six months after Sonny joined the group in 1956. And not many people realize that that accident occurred only three or four days after Sonny recorded Saxophone Colossus. It's one of the great tragedies and great losses in jazz history, and I don't think anybody ever got over it. I don't think the world ever got over it. It's just a gift that Clifford Brown was here at all, that we have the recording still. Clifford Brown also taught Sonny that there was another way to live. There was a time that Sonny thought that in order to be a jazz musician that you had to live what he thought of as the life, and that meant that you would inevitably be involved in drugs in some way. And Sonny saw that Clifford Brown was doing it very differently. There are other individuals that convinced Sonny to change his lifestyle, but Clifford Brown is absolutely one of them. And that's why Sonny dedicated the rest of his life to embodying jazz as a positive force in the world, to physical fitness, making sure that he was on top of his mental and spiritual health. And Mm. that kind of went back to that period when he was working with Max Rush and Clifford Brown.
0: I was very struck when he spoke with us 15 years ago that he paid the usual reverence to Charlie Parker, but especially he owed Charlie Parker for getting him, Sonny Rollins,
1: out of drugs as a very young man. That was a big deal. Absolutely. And it's, it's counterintuitive because one of the reasons that Sonny and his peers got into drugs to begin with was Charlie Parker. They saw that Bird and Billie Holiday were using because it was reported in the papers, and they thought maybe this had something to do with their artistic genius. They realized later that was not the case. Bird and Billie Holiday knew this, of course, but their disciples did not. Uh, Another thing is that Sonny and his peers thought, maybe uh, you can't trust the government, you can't trust what you read in the paper, and they placed more trust in the musicians that they idolized.
0: Let's hear the tune Eternal Triangle and what's called a cutting contest going on between Sonny Stitt and Sonny Rollins.
1: Many people consider this recording to be one of the great cutting contests or tenor battles. I think it's sometimes hard to discern who is the victor, and and there's some debate on this. In fact, just in the past couple weeks, there was a a dust-up over Sonny Stitt on jazz social media. (laughs) My take is Sonny Stitt is one of the great saxophonists of all time. No question. But the thing about this that I want to emphasize is that Sonny Rollins and Sonny Stitt were close friends, that there's always this idea that there's a bitter rivalry between musicians, that they're all vying for the top spot, but they were close. In fact, in the late 50s, Sonny Stitt helped Sonny Rollins get an apartment when he was having trouble getting a place, and they lived near each other on the Lower East Side. Absolutely, listening
0: to this music and certainly reading your book is the story of a community. It's a very loving community, despite the rivalries. And Coltrane-Rollins is a particular case. These two young men, born almost exactly at the same time, Coltrane, of course, died early, but they're remarkable musicians, known for their absolutely insatiable appetite for playing, 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 14, 16, 18 hours a day, never stopping virtually, but also for their philosophical journeys here. Drugs are a part of it, too long part of the Coltrane life, but how do we account for this, I don't know, this pairing of profoundly gifted artists
1: at the same time in friendship? Sonny is a few years younger than Coltrane. Yep. He had earlier success though. He was a prodigy and Coltrane didn't find success and become a household name until much later. When they recorded Tenor Madness in May of 1956, Sonny invited Coltrane to appear on his album. And when Nat Hentoff reviewed the album, he didn't have anything nice to say about Coltrane. It's kind of unbelievable, actually. Coltrane met Rollins in about 1950. In Chicago. Not too long thereafter, they met on a stage at the Audubon Ballroom performing with Miles Davis. There was this big hometown crowd gathered and they were expecting a bloodbath. This was another kind of cutting contest. Apparently Sonny won that day, so to speak. But the way Sonny tells it, there were other times that Coltrane won. They couldn't have been closer over time. Sonny Rollins and John Coltrane are two deeply spiritual individuals, and they shared reading suggestions with each other. Mm. Sonny recommended Paramahansa Yogananda's The Autobiography of a Yogi to Coltrane, and Coltrane recommended The Mysticism of Sound and Music by Hazrat Anayat Khan to Sonny. And after Coltrane's death, Coltrane's first wife, Naima, gave Sonny the lyric sheet for Love Supreme which was one of Sonny's favorite albums. Mm. I think that this sent Sonny even deeper in a spiritual direction because not too long after Coltrane's death, Sonny made a pilgrimage to India and spent months in an ashram studying Eastern religion. Then he went to Japan where he continued his study and he's continuing to study Eastern religion and going deeper and deeper into spirituality to this day. He told me not too long ago that he still reads Swami Vivekananda on a daily basis. That's stunning. The readings are
0: a marker of the fact that these musicians were living at a spiritual level, but also in real time. It's the late 50s, civil rights becoming a preeminent issue in American public life, and Sonny Rollins wrote the Freedom Suite and then wrote the liner notes, which I find still remarkable bit of prose. It's Sonny Rollins in his most emphatic, but also restrained, careful, Elegant prose, here's what he said in the notes, and it could be written today. America is deeply rooted in Negro culture, its colloquialisms, its humor, its music. How ironic that the Negro, who more than any other people can claim America's culture as its own, is being persecuted and repressed. That the Negro who has exemplified the humanities in his very existence is being rewarded with inhumanity. There's a kind of majestic truth but also care. He's not trying to hurt anybody or offend anybody or get even. He's talking about irony that has to be addressed. (laughs) ¶¶
1: album Freedom Suite was the first civil rights-themed album of the hard bop era. It preceded and inspired Max Roach and Abby Lincoln's Freedom Now Suite. I'm sure it inspired John Coltrane's Alabama. Sonny was moved to write the piece after he had trouble renting an apartment. Sonny's background in social justice, though, and in civil rights goes all the way back, Starting when he was four years old, his grandmother Miriam used to take him to marches in Harlem in support of Paul Robeson or the Scottsboro Boys. She hung a black nationalist flag in the house. She was a follower of Marcus Garvey. Sonny was raised with the spirit of social justice. Some people think that Sonny learned about civil rights from Frank Sinatra when Sinatra came to his high school to perform, but that is far from the truth, because Sonny was born with a social consciousness. It's a fascinating
0: little sidelight anyway. 1945 or 6, post-war, Benjamin Franklin High School, there's trouble between black and white kids, and who comes to sort of preach peace. But first, Sinatra, and then, a matter of days or weeks later,
1: Nat King Cole and his trio. (laughs) Those are the days. That's right. Sonny was witness to that. But prior to that, he'd also gone to a communist summer camp called Camp Unity in upstate New York. One of his counselors was Abel Meeropol, who <laughs> wrote the lyrics Strange Fruit. He was steeped in civil rights well before that. And the Freedom Suite was a part of that and uh, shows how deep of a thinker Sonny is. In the late 50s, we're talking
0: about the approach to a peculiar interesting moment in very few lives, but Sonny Rollins decided that he was going to not go to the woodshed. He was going to take what turned out to be two years out of professional playing or recording to go out every day on the Williamsburg Bridge between Brooklyn and Manhattan and relearn his horn. It's an extraordinary thing. I'm sure painters have done it, artists, writers, but what was Sonny Rollins up to? And was it because he anticipated the rising power
1: of John Coltrane and he had to be ready for a different sort of challenge? The bridge sabbatical, kind of the great legend of Sonny Rollins. It's all true. He did spend up to 16 hours a day performing on the Williamsburg Bridge. Mm. He'd really reached the peak of his fame up to that point in his life in 1959, getting top bookings and making a lot of money as an artist after toiling in the salt mines for years, starting in the late 40s. It's right at this moment that he makes the shocking decision to leave it all behind, knowing that perhaps it would all still be there if he ever decided to come back, but also not caring. He had loftier ambitions than just making money. And that was always the case with Sonny Rollins. Nobody knew that he was on the Williamsburg Bridge night and day, rain, sleet or snow, kind of like the Postal Service, but he was out there. He was playing out of view by an abutment to the bridge. So people crossing the bridge would encounter Sonny Rollins as a sound. And one day, a journalist named Ralph Burton was walking across the bridge, and he heard that sound, and he, he actually ended up seeing the person making it. He wasn't sure at first that it was Sonny Rollins, but it turned out that it was, of course. And Burton wrote an article in Metronome magazine kind of blowing Sonny's cover, and it was not too long thereafter that Sonny came down from the bridge, kind of like Moses from Sinai. And uh, (laughs) when he came back in the fall of 1961, it was the biggest story in jazz. And what did it say, Aiden, on the tablets from Sinai? What did he think he learned? During this period, he began getting involved with the Rosicrucians, He started looking into yoga and Eastern religion. He was systematically practicing exercises that he devised for himself on the saxophone, and he kept meticulous notes of what he was working on, and much of that is preserved in his archive at the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture. But what was on the tablets, we really just have the music. To read those tablets is something that you could spend your your entire life doing. Let's listen, Aiden,
0: and I'd love you to tell us what you hear going on. He did release a recording called The Bridge with a tune called The Bridge, and he was recording A Big Departure, really, and an interesting one with Jim Hall, guitar player.
1: When Sonny came down from the bridge, not everybody could hear a significant difference in his sound. Of course, Charlie Parker was a lifelong influence. He remains an influence on Sonny Rollins. But I think after the bridge, Sonny truly found his own voice. We have to listen to a little
0: bit of that God Bless the Child with the guitarist Jim Hall.
1: I think that's a remarkable recording. Right out of the gate, you hear Bob Cranshaw with that deep resonant sound on the upright bass. The feeling that he elicits from the bass never fails to move me. Also, the way that Sonny phrases conveys a profound love for Billie Holiday. So this is a tribute to Billie Holiday, whom mm-hmm. he loved and, and her phrasing. He was one of the great ballad players. Many people think yes. of Sonny that he sounds like a bullet train. Uh, Some people would say, oh, it sounds like Coleman Hawkins sped up. But it's not just that he could play fast. He could also move you through a ballad. And that was always true.
0: Aiden, jazz stars are, like everybody else, judged by the company they keep. Before we're done, I want to hear you comment on some famous pairings with Sonny Rollins, including Coleman Hawkins, including
1: Thelonious Monk, maybe including Miles Davis, too. Where should we start? We could start with Thelonious Monk, because Sonny met Monk when he was still in high school. Monk held these legendary sessions at his apartment in San Juan Hill, which is where Lincoln Center is now. And Thelonious Monk became a mentor to Sonny Rollins. They had one of the great collaborations in jazz.
0: I'm hoping you'll call the tune Mysterioso.
1: I love that recording. Sonny eventually came to think of Thelonious Monk as his guru. The way that Monk comped, it always sent Sonny in a different direction. The pianist comping is thought to be helping out the horn player, but you're saying he was leading him too. That's right, he was leading him as well. Not everybody loved to be accompanied by Monk. (laughs) Miles Davis had some issues. But the way Sonny thinks of it, Monk was always right. Everything Monk played was right. Monk had an encyclopedic knowledge of the great American songbook, of standard repertoire and jazz. So Sonny and his peers, if they wanted to know the right chord changes to a tune, sometimes they would go and visit Monk, and he would know the right chord changes.
0: You say Monk knew the songbook. Sonny Rollins was famous for knowing everything, including opera, Radio commercials, sort of junk tunes, we call them, like I'm an Old Cow Hand from the Rio Grande. You could find material in almost any tune. Explain that.
1: What's fascinating is that to Sonny, they're not junk tunes. Of course not. He heard I'm an Old Cow Hand in the movie Rhythm on the Range. He loved Bing Crosby. So when he recorded that on Way Out West, it was a tribute to the Westerns of his youth. <laughs> He also loved Herb Jeffries, the Black Western star known as the Bronze Buckaroo. Uh, But Sonny is one of the great interpreters of the Great American Songbook, and many of those songs he heard at the movies. He was a cinephile growing up and would go see movies in Harlem at the Lincoln Theater or the Odeon. He loved Jerome Kern, among many others. Yeah. It was unusual repertoire but there was always a personal connection for Sonny. He wasn't picking songs in order to be eccentric. He was picking songs because he loved them.
0: We must listen to a little bit of Sonny playing with his idol, his mentor, a giant of an earlier era, Coleman Hawkins, as you've mentioned. He worshipped Coleman Hawkins growing up, and it also put him in a particular category of the big strong man sound. Accompanying whom in that one?
1: They're really accompanying each other on that track. You hear, I think, on this album, Sonny attempting to differentiate himself very clearly from Hawkins. And at one point during the recording session, Hawkins said to Sonny, I'm not feeling the beat with what you're doing. There's this moment of spiritual communion among them where Sonny realizes that he has to look inside himself and find that beat. And he does. And I I think you can hear it come out when they recorded Summertime on that album, which they did later. You can sense how proud Hawkins is of Sonny Rollins.
0: Wow. You're raising a high standard, and thank you, Aiden, of how to listen to these things and how much is going on. Not keys and notes, but people and messages. I wonder where you place all this in the overall history, and it is
1: a grand history of American art and American life. I think of something that the artist Romare Bearden said about American culture. He identified four dominant influences. The tradition of Emily Dickinson, Ralph Waldo Emerson, and Walt Whitman. Then the African-American tradition. Then he spoke of the tradition of the frontiersmen. And finally, indigenous peoples. Uh, Native Americans. I think of Sonny as embodying these four influences and moving beyond these influences. We don't have to go very far to see that Sonny was steeped in African American culture. Of course, I mean, he was exposed to gospel music very early on by his grandmother when she took him to Mother Horn's church in Harlem. The Frontier, as I said earlier, Sonny loved Westerns, mm. he would see all those movies. And finally, his study of Native American culture. So he, I think, encapsulates the best of American culture and has always represented an ideal Hmm. that we can all continue to strive for. Amen. I'd love to go
0: out, Aiden, on a curious song associated with Sonny called Don't Stop the Carnival. It's pure Sonny. It's very rhythmic. It's very inclusive very happy sound, it encompasses a lot of the band. Highlight under the miracles that Sonny could pull off, making a
1: lot out of very little. Sonny was known for interpreting Calypso and for integrating Calypso into the jazz tradition. He was first exposed to Calypso by his mother. She would sing St. Thomas to him as a lullaby. She also took him to Calypso dances in Harlem when he was growing up. And one of the great Calypso songs is Don't Stop the Carnival. It eventually became a theme song for Sonny and he ended many of his shows with Don't Stop the Carnival. For the recording, Sonny also recruited some of the Harry Belafonte singers to sing. So there was that connection to another famous Harlem resident, Harry Belafonte. As I said, Sonny oftentimes ended concerts with Don't Stop the Carnival and it represented an affirmation of life and the Mm. idea of the continuity of life that regardless of all the darkness out there that there would still be a light and uh, Sonny somehow despite everything remains optimistic, he still does and that's symbolized through Don't Stop the Carnival. When Sonny gave his final concert in 2012 that's how the night ended with a long Don't Stop the Carnival because he could extend that piece for a long time. It's sad that he had to retire from performing after he was diagnosed with pulmonary fibrosis. But for Sonny, the carnival continues.
0: What a joy to hear that sound, and what a privilege to be able to extend it on the air. Thank you, Aiden Levy, and of course, thank you,
1: Sonny Rollins. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Aidan Levy is the author of Saxophone Colossus, the life and music of Sonny Rollins. Special thanks this week to George Hicks, radio engineer and producer extraordinaire, also to Adam Coleman, and to the podcast Colossus, Mary McGrath. I'm Christopher Leighton. Do send us a comment on Sonny Rollins, and let us thank you for being part of the open-source conversation. Open Source is a proud member of Hub & Spoke, a Boston-based collective of independent podcasts. This week, check out Nocturne, a show about nighttime from Vanessa Lowe. You can find it at nocturnepodcast.org. And you can learn about all the Hub & Spoke shows at hubspokeaudio.org.
2: Hub & Spoke, audio collective.